Good morning. My name is Riley Diefenbach. Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, and chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Well, good morning, everybody. I want to start with a cool story for me. It was about a year ago, I think it was May of 2019, I got a phone call from uh, a voice, a person from my past, from Olympia. He was a high school student there in uh, 1992, and he remembered something from 27 years before, uh, something that I was part of. And let me tell you what that was. In, in 1992, earlier that year, uh, from when this thing I'm going to describe to you happened. I met this guy who was, he, we went to church together and we became friends and we shared a passion for fly fishing. And that got us talking and spending time talking about politics because he worked for the state democratic party. And I was in business at the time. I tended to vote Republican and we had lots of conversations, discussions and arguments about that. But uh, we grew to love each other, and we decided that at the church we were attending, where I, I was also a lay pastor, that we would do a presentation kind of thing on a Sunday night. To uh, The idea would be to get Christians to see what it, it is to enter into a political conversation together uh, in a civil way. And we did that. We modeled that. And Danny was there. That 16-year-old high school kid was there that night. And... Uh, He saw that, and one of the conclusions that we came to that night together is that neither party is big enough to contain all of the promises and all of the teachings of Jesus. And to to even think that one political party could do that uh, is, uh, it's it's just not going to happen. And that was one of the things we agreed on. So, uh, this kid, 27 years later, calls me up to tell me, and he actually took me out to breakfast. We went to the Issaquah Cafe. He bought breakfast. And he thanked me for my part in that evening. And it, for him, it was part of, he, had, he said he had never seen that before, and he's hardly seen it since then. And it was part of him becoming a follower of Christ to see that modeled and to see the salt and light that uh, was shared that night uh, together, really. So uh, that's a cool story for me. And uh, I I think, though, if it was needed 27 years ago or now 28 years ago, it is needed more today. And I think you would all agree with me on that one. 
that there is so much divisiveness. And I just in the last month, I've had three different conversations with some of you about the divisiveness and how how hard it is and how it puts such pressure on our, our relationships. And so I want to let me just read to you. Uh, I cut and pasted one of these out. Uh, from an email just the other day. Do you have any words of wisdom on the divisiveness of politics within the Christian community? So I'm going to do my best to uh, give some of that wisdom today, and we're going to start with Scripture. And uh, I'm going to, in this series called The Main Thing, and, you know, it's not going to surprise you that the main thing here is going to be Jesus and his kingdom. But um, we'll start with with uh, some scripture, and then we'll we'll get into. I'll, I'll get the uh, slide up there now. The, the three parts to this: the, the bad blood brothers. I'll explain what that means, and then uh, kingdom qualities, and then uh, kingdom wisdom. We'll end with that. Uh, we we really need this, and we're in danger, folks, of hurting someone when we enter into politics, hurting people in God's image, and we're also in danger of being hurt. And so uh, this is, I'll I'll do my best here. And um, let's go to the scripture that was read for us. It's really an interesting uh, part of scripture. And uh, Jesus, we didn't read this, we read Matthew's account of the choosing of the 12 disciples or apostles. But Luke tells us in the same it's, it's the same account, but he tells a little differently, is that Jesus prayed all night before he chose these 12 who were to be. The number 12 is really significant. Now, in Seattle, we know 12 is a big number if you're a Seahawk fan. But for Jesus to choose 12, what it meant was this is a reconstitution of the 12 tribes of Israel. It, it, we're going we're gonna to do Israel all over again. It's going to be different this time. And it's going to be that light to the nations that the old Israel uh, never really became. And so in choosing these 12, we would expect Jesus to choose the best and the brightest. But what we get is, uh, well, people like us. And uh, even more so, he chooses, which tells us that his ways are not our ways, but he chooses one who is going to betray him in Judas Iscariot. So uh, it's an interesting um, it's an interesting list, and there are two names on that list that that come with uh, I guess you could say qualifiers or reputations. And the first one is Matthew, the tax collector. He's also known as Levi, but more commonly known as Matthew, the tax collector, and. Uh, he was someone who collected taxes. He was Jewish, uh, but he collected taxes for the Roman government that was the uh, oppressor. No one liked the Romans if you were Jewish, and he was kind of a collaborator with them. And so he was um, maybe seen as a social pariah. Uh, he wouldn't have had any friends except his fellow tax collectors, which we read about here when he has Jesus over for dinner. That's who he invites come be with him. That's probably the only friends he had. So uh, he was not uh, seen uh, um, in, a, in a good light by his surrounding uh, Jewish culture. And we might also think, and this, this is where the scriptures invite us to use our imaginations, that when he was sitting there that day, 
at his tax collector's booth alongside the road, and Jesus comes along and says, follow me, that he was prepared, that God, the Holy Spirit, had done something in his heart ahead of time where he was sick and tired of being a tax collector. And he hate, maybe hated himself, self-loathed. And uh, just, you know, why am I doing this? It's all for money. And is it worth it? Nobody likes me. And his soul would have been what I would call exhausted, soul exhaustion. And so Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew was ready. He was ready to say, yeah, I'm going to do that. So that's Matthew. And he was basically had to say what he was in the eyes of his culture. He was a traitor. He sold his soul to the Romans for money. And then you have in this group of 12, you have another the, you have Simon the Zealot. And a zealot, the way that is used there, it probably means he was uh, an extreme, part of an extreme group of nationalists or patriots who wanted to make Israel great again and who were would use any means necessary to do so, including violence. And so this is Simon the Zealot, and Simon would have hated the Romans, and anybody who was a friend of the Romans was an enemy of Simon's. So he would have hated Matthew as a tax collector. And so the word for that we could say for Simon would be he was a terrorist. Um, and so you have a traitor and a terrorist together in this group of 12. Jesus, did you really pray all night? Um, I mean, I, you, you wonder how he put this group together, but he does. And for Matthew, the main thing in his life up to this point had been money. And for Simon, the main thing in his life up to this point would have been uh, patriotism or, or nationalism. And so what we're going to see here in these two characters is, and this is the argument of the Bible for us, is how those primary things then become secondary, how the main thing becomes Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And uh, that we don't, we don't get to see that happening uh, in, in the case of these two. The, the, the New Testament doesn't really tell us about their conversations at all. But we do know, just by inference, that you know Matthew wrote his gospel, and we don't really hear anything more about Simon the Zealot, but by inference that they both had to set aside what had been primary in their lives and make Jesus and his kingdom primary. So that's, that's, it's a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. So there's the bad, the bad blood brothers right there. You got Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Now, uh, what I want to do is make three observations about the kingdom and the, the qualities of the kingdom and the first one, and, and you, I'm making these based on just, just on that story right there. If that's all we had, I would make these three observations uh, about the kingdom of God. The first is that you can't say there's a kind of person that is a kingdom person until they're in the kingdom. In other words, you can't look at someone and say, well, they'll never be a Christian. They'll never follow Christ. Look at just look at their life. They're never going to follow Christ, and and you become kind of cynical. And you, you why bother praying for that person? Kind of a thing. Um, 
It's, it, and that just doesn't work. That you, I think one of the reasons we have such diversity in these 12 disciples is so that we and anybody in this world can see that they too could become part of, of this thing uh, called the church. And it's, it's really a diverse place. And um, I, I think of myself in my college years, my early college years as an atheist at the University of Washington. And if somebody were to look, have looked at me and, and, and said, well, that he'll never be, he'll never, why bother praying for him? He'll never be a Christian. I mean, as somebody, maybe I, there were times when I would mock Christians, not, not publicly, but in my mind or in my heart or in a conversation with, with someone else. Uh, I, I would just really look down on them and make fun of them. And, and, um, yeah. And so to look, to look at someone and say, they'll never be a Christian. I'm glad that I had some people that were praying for me at least, and that had hopes for me beyond where I was at the time. So to, um, uh, just to, to to think that we could ever say that about somebody is, is not going to work. Um, I want to, yeah, I just put this in here now. I'm not a Christian because I like to go to church on Sunday. That that didn't draw me in. And it wasn't because I liked the music. That didn't draw me in. And it wasn't really because of, uh, I mean, there were people I knew that that were Christians who that, that God used to, to draw me in. But there were a lot of weird ones, too. And uh, so it, it wasn't, I mean, here's the thing is that what drew me in to the this Christian faith was two things. One is I was like Matthew. I was, my soul was exhausted from pursuing my own agendas and my, uh, my self management. It just, it just wasn't working. So my soul was exhausted. And then as I saw Jesus Christ, he became irresistible to me. And that's it. I mean, those, those two things together, as best I can tell is the reason that I became a Christian and, uh, it, of course, it's a miracle whenever. It, it's, it's like being born a second time, and it's always, a, it's not, never happens without miracles. So uh, remember that. But uh, so th- there's that sense. You can't say this kind of person or that kind of person is more predisposed to becoming a Christian. Just look around and you'll see. Okay, the second thing is that the kingdom of God, it, just based on this passage, you can't it always outflanks whatever else is there. It, it will outflank, meaning that it will precede it, it will exceed it, and it will succeed it. It will. It comes before. It's bigger than, and it it comes after. It just surrounds, and you can't get bigger than the kingdom of God, and you can't get outside of it to comment on it. You know, it, it just outflanks you. It's bigger than, it's bigger than the kingdom of, uh, for uh, Matthew, the, the kingdom of Mammon was, you know, his, and for for uh, Simon, it was the, the kingdom of, of Israel. And and there's always a, a kingdom. For me, in my, uh, in my post-college years, it, it, I, I became enamored with free market capitalism and uh there's there's some names there I could toss out, but as an economics major, I was really into this sort of pure form of free market capitalism, and that was my kingdom that I, 
You know, that was, that was my, where my loyalty was. And uh, the kingdom of God outflanks that. It, it just did an end around. It was bigger than. It, it, had, it could explain more. Um, Psalm 2 is, is one of the key psalms that gets quoted quite a few times in the New Testament. And it's, it's in there is God standing over the nations, saying, why did the nations rage you know, against me and my anointed one? It, it's God who mocks their raging again. It, he stands over and above our political world. Last week we talked about the isms of this world and how beliefism in different things uh, can it it, it 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 can be anything. All these kingdoms that can come and make their case for our loyalty in our hearts and. Uh, none of them are adequate. None of them are big enough to uh, capture the essence of Jesus' teachings in, in the kingdom of God. Um, one of the things that got back in 1992 when I did that, that political uh, seminar thing with my friend, my Democrat friend, uh, one of the things I threw out that night, it's a, it's a line from T.S. Eliot, which... I, I just I love it, and I kind of, it was kind of a jab towards my Democratic friend, um, but it still it works it, it cuts both ways. And uh, Elliot said that um, we're the, the the modern social engineering projects, and he was thinking primarily I think of communism, but uh, social engineering projects they they are always uh, dreaming of coming up with a perfect system where no one has to be good. And it, it just doesn't work. I mean, we, we, we're we not good, and we're not going to find a system, a political system, that's going to make us good. And um, that is is true. It, the, the kingdom of God is, is bigger than our politics. The third thing that we notice about <clears throat> the, uh, the kingdom of God is how unifying it is in diversity. And, and just looking at the example of, of Matthew and, and Simon would be an example. But the, we, we know that the early church was, uh, we can see it in the New Testament, but we also know from, from history that it, it was made up of uh, just a very diverse group of people that would have not had a whole lot in common. There would have been no other reason for these people to come together in, in the ways they did. And it, it consisted of uh, the Jew and the Gentile, which had been a huge division. And the New Testament is about reconciling those two groups, the Jewish world and all, all the other people. And even uh, the barbarians, they were called. I mean, though they too were brought in. And you had men and women and slave and free you had all these different races that were part of it, and languages, and it, it truly was this, this 12 new Israel became something for the whole world, and you can see that today as it repre- is represented in every nation. It is amazing how, when you focus on the main thing, how it can unify so much diversity, and the main thing, just Jesus Christ, his kingdom, his teachings, and the world was, uh, was unified through that, that the Christian world became one in Christ. It was like a family. So you find in the New Testament this phrase, brothers and sisters. It's over a hundred times. People who were 
maybe like Matthew and, and Simon, are now brothers. Not their family, not just going to church together. They actually become, in some sense, family in the kingdom of God. So these three things about the kingdom. One is that there's not that that kind of person. It, it's just there's surprises everywhere. Two is that the king, the kingdom of God outflanks everything else. It precedes, it exceeds, and it succeeds everything. And then the third thing is that it unifies, and we see that in this story with Matthew and Simon. All right, then some wisdom. <clears throat> I want to get to the wisdom that maybe will help us as we, between now and I guess it's uh, November 3rd, uh, when the election is, and I just pray for these next six months or whatever it is. Pray for God's truth and grace to be upon his people and upon this political process in our nation. So the first thing I want to do is get a, uh, a slide up. This is a slide I've used before. It's based on the work of a social historian, Rodney Stark, who is now at Baylor. He used to be at the University of Washington, actually. And uh, he's written a lot about this based on research. The early church, the characteristics of the early church. And I, I just pulled a few out here, but let me read them for you. The early church, as contrasted with culture, the surrounding culture, the Roman, the Greco-Roman culture, empowered women much more, did not practice abortion, held traditional views of marriage and sexuality, mixed races and social and economic classes, was against the violence of gladiator entertainment, said no to military service, gave aid to the sick and the oppressed, and believed Jesus was the only way to salvation. Now, as you look at that list, you will notice that some of those things we would identify as being on the liberal side and other things being on the conservative side. And just to let you know that this list was, it, it may not have been every Christian believed this, but it, there was great consensus around these things. And that they did all of this because they were not on a liberal or conservative spectrum, but they were on, they believed as they understood it, uh, best they could, that they were on a kingdom of God uh, spectrum or line. That was, I'll show you here in a second. But I, I want you to hear that, that when you follow Jesus, I, I would think that you would have some positions that are, are if you follow, here, let me put it this way. If you follow Jesus, it's going to mess with you if you are all uh, CNN or all Fox News. It's going to mess with you. It will, it just will. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. You're not following an ism or an uh, ideology of this world. And you're not even on that line of left to right. Let me show you another uh, illustration here. And that is uh, th these two lines that intersect. And uh, this is just for illustration purposes. But you have the, the left to right. Think of the left to right line as being the pol political kingdom of this world and you have things on the left you have things on the right and then you have the kingdom of god and a whole other, a different line and it's going to intersect this other line on and on every issue it's going to intersect it in a different place uh, sometimes more to the right sometimes more to the left in terms of how this world defines it 
Now, at that, I, I hope that makes sense to you. But the knowledge of that is absolutely key to getting along with other people in this world. And uh, your our primary task as followers of Christ is to listen to him first and foremost, to make him the main thing. His voice is the main thing, not what's said on television or social media. Jesus Christ, his voice above all. So how do we know if we are on the kingdom line or we're on the political line of this world? How do we know? I'm going to give you a test, and I really want you to run this past your heart. Uh, I'll give you a couple of things. The first thing is that if you overinvest, over if you over-identify with that left-right line in this world, uh, the conservative-liberal line that dominates our culture, if you over-invest in placing yourself on that line, you will wake up on November 4th, which will be a Wednesday after the election, and you will either be elated or depressed if you're on that line. That's that I can predict that. And if you're on the other line, you're going to say, you're going to, first of all, you're going to pray for whoever is our next president and leaders, and you're going to remember the promises of Jesus that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that you can have peace in your soul. And that's just a beautiful thing. Take it, take it, take it. It's so much better. And then the second test is the relational test, and that is, have you lost any friends? Have you been, have either you have hurt someone or someone has hurt you through a political conversation? And maybe you were, on the kingdom of God line and they weren't or vice versa. And is there some work that you could do to repair that? Because that would be a kingdom of God thing. I mean, I don't, I don't know about Matthew and Simon and how, how, how doesn't the scriptures don't tell us, but you can only imagine that the first time Simon met Matthew, he had a sneer in his soul and that Matthew probably had fear and looked over his shoulder, wondered if he would find a knife in his back and they became brothers. You can become a brother and a sister to those who think differently than you. If you put the kingdom of God first, seek God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will sort themselves out. Keep the main thing the main thing. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, is there, I want to just ask each of us now, and you can close your eyes, is there something that is primary? Something that you're holding on to with far too much tenacity that keeps you on that line, that political line of this world, instead of the kingdom of God? And I know, I'm I'm smart enough to know that we can be on that kingdom of God line and not hold exactly the same position. I mean, in in our hearts, we are sincere in our belief that we're in the the right place with Jesus. I know that, and we won't always be the same, but, but be on that line. Oh, Lord, help us to see clearly here 
that our, our hearts are with your heart. That we're not just bringing our politics to you and asking you to anoint it. Yeah, help us, Jesus, to sort that out. Reveal to us, Lord, places where we haven't surrendered. And Lord, as we seek first your kingdom, I pray, I just pray that that motto, would, would, that, that would be just this, these words that would echo and reverberate in our hearts, to seek first your kingdom, to make you, Lord, the main thing, to hear your voice, to hear it clearly, and to respond to it quickly. I pray this for myself. I pray this for my brothers and sisters who are in you. And may your peace abound to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.